let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we close this six-week series on the Reformation at 500 years, this series we've been called, we've, been, we've, been, we've named Always Reforming, I have a question. What's the center of your Bible? I know that if we're, if we're chapter counting, that Psalm 118 is actually the center of what we call the Bible today. But I'm not really asking that question. I'm asking, what is the theological or heart center of your Bible that you read? Chris Gertz and Mark Patty, the authors of the Pietist Option, they suggest that you can learn a lot from a Christian by looking at their Bible, and that for each movement of the Christian faith, there is a biblical focal point. A passage that has been read so many times that the Bible practically falls open to it. For our Mennonite friends, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. For our Calvinist friends, it's probably something in the first half of Romans. For our brothers and sisters in the African-American church, many of them continually are formed by the Exodus narrative. So, for the Pietist, for the Covenanter in our case, what is the center of our Bible? I'd never really pondered uh, this question. So when I read Chris and Mark's book that pietists come back over and over again to John 17, I was, I was amazed. If there's a chapter in my Bible, and some of you have seen my Bible, if there's a chapter in my Bible that has more coffee stains or, or dirt or pen marks or highlighters than John 17, I can't find it. I've been infatuated with this chapter of Scripture since I was 16 years old. For me, this, this climax of the upper room discourse that starts in John 13 is one of the most hauntingly beautiful and poignant passages of Scripture. Like Katrina said, all Scripture is cool, but this is like really cool, right? For that reason, I, I used this upper room discourse last week while I was in Scotland with seven friends. In February, we began this new adult discipleship cohort here at Hinsdale Covenant. We call it the Canopy Course. The goal of this course is to affirm God's calling on our lives to investigate what our spiritual gifts might be and then to pilgrimage together. These elements together give us a view from the canopy. That's why it's called the canopy course. So much of our lives are in the midst of the weeds and the, and the big tree trunks and, and the brush and it's difficult for us to catch a vision of what God has in front of us. But a view from the canopy gives us clarity and a sense of God's leading. Pilgrimage is a vital element of this. So that's why we go to these hard-to-get-to places so that we can finally catch a vision of all that's really close to home for us. So eight of us spent a week together in Scotland traveling to a traditional pilgrimage site. It's the island of Iona off the west coast of Scotland. It's one of the oldest centers of Christianity in Europe, and it's the source of the spread of Christianity uh, in Scotland since 583. And it was a remarkable trip. Uh, if any of you have a little time after the service, we're actually going to be up in the upper room so you can see more pictures and hear more stories from some of the participants and hope that some of you can join us for that. But each day of this trip, we walked through a chapter of the upper room discourse, starting in John 13, ending in John 17. And it was a thrill uh, to ponder John 15, for example, when we're on the island of Iona talking about the vine and the branches and what it means to abide in Jesus 
But in many ways, the climax of our study together was, was John 17 on that last day. We read those verses, 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. You can imagine we read that passage in a crowded coffee house in Edinburgh. And, and when we read those words, I think I was reading at the time, I read those words, one member of the group said loudly, Amen! Uh, and I felt that amen as well, in a large part because this was a remarkably unified group. In fact, in a week of travel, on a bus together, conversation, scripture study, touring together, there was not an iota of conflict or drama, just a unified desire to grow in faith and to travel well as pilgrims together. So this trip will always remind me of unity, that word unity and what unity means. But there is a danger in talking about Christian unity. Unity, as an ideal, can, can get a little mushy at times. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It can mean coexistence or tolerance or even sometimes a loss of personal identity for the sake of another person. In my observation, sometimes the people who up, up, uphold this, this ideal of unity the most make me wonder if they actually know what unity is. <laughs> And when I look at the disciples, and I look at Jesus' call to unity in John 17, I think it looks a lot different than what we might consider to be unity today or the way that we use unity today. I want to make just a few observations from this group of disciples that Jesus is praying for in John 17. First, it's pretty clear to me that Jesus didn't have a type when it came to picking the disciples. When we look over this ragtag group of disciples, it, it, it would be hard to assert that anybody else other than Jesus could bring these people together. I mean, how else would this group of people ever come together? They weren't friends prior to knowing Jesus. In fact, uh, it's worth noting that they came from, from sort of all over the Jewish world. And it's worth noting that there was probably some severe conflict uh, going on in this group. For instance, when we read the list of the disciples, we come across a, a gentleman named Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot was in, in first century Israel? It was, the zealots were a group that were formed in approximately 6 AD after a new taxation policy from the governor Quirinius, who we know a little bit about. And these zealots, they were dedicated to resisting Roman occupation. And it was a particularly violent resistance. They were known to, to camp out in the hill regions and to strike Roman villages and caravans, killing or injuring some and, and disrupting everyday life, for sure. In a lot of ways, they were first century terrorists. That's what zealots were. They especially loved to target other Jews who they saw as cooperating or sympathetic or compromising with the Roman occupation. And their chief target was tax collectors. Because tax collectors were seen as part of oppressing their fellow Jews. They were widely hated in Judea. But the zealots took it to this new bloody, violent level. So Simon's job was to create chaos. It might be surprising enough to think that Jesus would think that this is a good person for to be one of his 12 disciples, but even more surprising is to imagine Simon, a zealot, sitting next to Matthew, who was a tax collector. I wish that we had an account of what that conversation was like between these two men sitting around the table. We don't have that in Scripture, but I think it's safe to assume 
that they must have worked through some of their issues together. Otherwise, there's no way they could have sat at the table together because everything about their lives would have logically divided them. There had to be something that kept them together, something that bound this entire group together. And it was the call to follow Jesus. That's what bound them together. There are numerous accounts of Jesus calling his disciples. He stands at the edge of the lake and calls to these fishermen, and he says, follow me. He goes to the tax booth to Matthew, and he says, follow me. And these people were compelled to leave behind their boats and their fathers and their tax booths and come and follow him. That's the common bond of this ragtag group. There's not a type. Couldn't we say that the same about he, uh, us here today, I think, right? If not for Jesus, what are the odds that we would all be gathered in the same place together? I think it's okay to admit we're a little bit of a ragtag group. That's all right. We've got people who have widely divergent political, theological, philosophical, personal stances. We might be living in the most divisive time in recent history. In fact, we might be, li uh, we might be likely to be at each other's throats on any number of issues, but... That's not what brings us together, right? It's Jesus who brings us together. And more specifically, it's his call that echoes and reverberates off these walls and in our hearts the call, follow me. Follow me. Second thing from these disciples and Jesus' prayer for them is that unity is only required for communities. Now, this might seem self-evident, but it's worth noting that Jesus didn't pick an individual disciple to be his follower, nor a sequence of individual disciples. He chose a group. The fact that Jesus appoints 12 disciples is really significant. He's sending a strong message to the Jewish world in doing so that he's taking these Old Testament themes and he's giving them new meaning under his leadership. We see that in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Abraham, but he doesn't make it with a single person. He makes a covenant with Abraham's descendants and promises to work out his purposes through not an individual, but through a people, through a people. It's through this people called Israel that God chooses to enact his redemptive work. And the people are broken into 12 tribes, each with different gifts and tasks. And when they're working together, they reflect their God. So it is with the disciples. He doesn't choose a single emissary, but he rather chooses a group of followers to be the conduit of his redemption and his salvation in what we call the church. The call to unity only makes sense in community. I'm painfully aware of my inability to do the work of God's redemptive purposes in this church on my own. I need each and every one of you. You need the person that's sitting behind you and beside you and in front of you and across the room from you. If we want to be about God's work, to do his good work in the church, we need to realize that we as individuals can't be 12 different people or 300 different people. We can only be ourselves. And we have to let everybody else be what we're not. I know that I don't have the chance of reflecting Jesus' fullness without each of you. And that's why unity is so very important. Third observation from these disciples is that unity is not the end goal. This is important. Jesus spends three years with his disciples, not merely to form them or to educate them. He spends time with them so that they can go out and change the world. Jesus had a very specific purpose for his disciples. The community was not about them feeling good or bettering themselves. The call to unity is not for unity's sake. It's for the sake of what's to come later. 
In the upper room, Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he's going to ascend to heaven so that they can continue to follow him even after he has left this earth. So it is with us, and I believe that God is in the process of preparing us for something significant as a community together. Unity is not the end goal. It's unity for the sake of what God is preparing for us. So with these three points in mind, let's go back to verses 20 and 21. A couple of things here. First of all, Jesus prays for the unity of his 12 disciples, and the prayer is that they, and, and I think us by extension, might be unified as the Father and the Son are unified. Now, are there differences between the Father and the Son? Well, yes, in substance and in form and, and in essence and how we understand them. Yes, absolutely. But are they unified completely in what is important? Are the Son and the Father moving in the same direction here? Are they united in mission? Yes, they are. Remember, unity is not the end goal. And that's why Jesus prays that we might be unified as the Father and Son are so that the world might believe that the Father sent Jesus. The point of unity is for the sake of our witness. So I need to state a hard truth today. And that's this. The church has repeatedly failed to realize Jesus' call to unity. And I think it's critically hurt our witness in the world. Several years ago, I was planning a, a junior high event, and I decided that we were going to go bowling. Uh, it was during a weeknight, and so I called a number of, of bowling alleys, five to, and, and I was asking like for five to six lanes to accommodate our group. And I kept hearing the same answer from these bowling alleys. Oh, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't do that on a Wednesday night because that's league night. And finally, the sixth or seventh alley that I called said, you know, we have league night that night, but we could probably squeeze you into the last five lanes or so. And so we did that. And... Uh, we were way off on the end uh, bowling, but to be honest with you, I don't know that I bowled really at all because I was so fascinated by what was going on with this bowling league. There was at least 100 people in this league of varying different ages. They, um, they brought their own food. Their conversation was lively and raucous. There were lots of hugs and high fives. Uh, they brought in their own music. Um, they had some sort of league newsletter that they were like passing out to people. And it all hit me at once. They're, doing ch they're imitating church right? It's music and it's food and they've got a bulletin and they're laughing together. This is a community. It's a place to belong, a place to be known, a place to be about something together. And if you think about it, everyone, including you and including me, we're searching for community. It's not just bowling leagues. What about country clubs or coffee houses or, or gyms or sports teams or online gaming? Community serves our basic needs for belonging and companionship and significance. Now, maybe you're part of a bowling league or a member of a country club or you're in a poker group or you're in a running club or anything like that. I'm not slighting your community, but I need to be honest and tell you that as I watched this, this bowling league doing their thing, I was equal parts fascinated and totally saddened because and the reason I was sad was because I could tell that a, a great number, probably not everybody, but a great number of the people who were there, this was their community, right? It was the primary group where they found belonging, companionship, and significance. And I hope you're not offended if I tell you that I find that to be devastatingly sad because there has to be limits to that community. 
I don't want you to hear this call to unity this morning as merely a call for you to enter into true community or to push deeper into true community or make more friends here, but I want you to open your eyes and realize that the world is full of people who are desperate for real, authentic community, and they don't know where to look. And many of them are finding a bowling alley or a country club or an online forum more compelling as a community than church. Now, that might be their issue. They may have things to work through. But I think ultimately we're culpable as the church. All too often we as the church have not presented the world with a real compelling community. We're seen as judgmental, hypocritical, cloistered, tribalistic, polarizing, irrelevant, rigid, inauthentic. And most of all, we're seen as a place of disunity, not unity. With a world that's dying for real community, I have to ask, can we offer that? Can we do better than the local bowling alley, at least for a start? Our reflections on the Reformation this fall would be incomplete if we didn't admit that the Reformation was a movement uh, for all of the good that it did. It was, a, it was not a unifying movement. It fractured us from our Catholic brothers and sisters and even further from our Orthodox brothers and sisters. I don't believe that this was the intention of the early reformers. If you read them, I don't, I don't believe this was their intention. Nor do I want to diminish the need for reformation in the church at the time. But I still lament the fractures and the divisions that have led, so, led to so many Christian movements and denominations. I know that it's not possible for us to always stay unified. Sometimes we have to break fellowship. But I'm saddened that we've been unable to do better and that we still define our varieties of the Christian faith upon, along dividing lines like theology and practice and polity and sacraments and politics. It's okay for us to say this morning that we've, we've fallen short. On the island of Iona, um, I was an hour or so into a period of silence and prayer, and I stumbled upon a small chapel down by the water. It's called St. Michael's Chapel. It's a quaint and, and beautiful place, but it's not really remarkable in any way, but it was cold and it was quiet, um, so I sat in prayer. And all of a sudden, um, as I'm sitting in prayer, the door opened and a group of about 30, 35 people began to file in. Now, I don't think there can be more than like 80 or 100 people on the island altogether, so I was kind of wondering where they came from. Uh, and I realized that they were coming in for a chapel service. As I made my way to start, I, I was kind of trapped because um, they came in and started sitting down. I'm like, oh, geez, I guess I better leave. So I, I started to get up to leave and a couple people greeted me. And then an old Irish Catholic priest, I'm guessing about 90 years old, came in on his cane, and he invited me to stay. So I decided I would stay. And I had mass uh, with these Catholic parish workers from, from all over the world. The priest, his name, this is him right here, uh, his name's John O'Reardon. Uh, he gave a homily on what unifies us, our common journey in Jesus Christ. So needless to say, I was listening intently. And the Mass closed with communion. Uh, I wanted to be sensitive to my Catholic brothers and sisters, so I went up for communion, but I sought a blessing um, rather than the Eucharist, knowing that I, I probably wasn't allowed to take communion. So I came up to, to Father John, and I said, Bless me, Father. But he looked at me, and he said, This is a meal for all pilgrims. And he handed me the bread. It was a very moving moment for me. Now, I realize that if... Father John and I decided to pastor a church together, that we would probably have some irreconcilable differences, right? Of practice and theology 
But the thing that was beautiful about that space is it didn't matter in that place or, or in that moment because our, our practice and our theology weren't central in that place. Our desire to join together in the journey of following Jesus, that's what was central. It's a powerful example of Christian unity. And, and dare I say, it felt very covenant to me. <laughs> and that's one of the exciting things about our pietistic heritage is that unity is a central theme of who we are. It was the heart's desire of our forebears, and it's still in our DNA, and I think it's a worthy thing for us to strive for. But how do we do that? How do we strive for unity in a time of such divisiveness? Let me offer a few suggestions on how we can continue this tradition of upholding unity. First of all, for the sake of Christian unity, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. When we come together as a community, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. When the disciples were called, they had to leave behind everything and follow Jesus and able to, to be able to enter into this new community. And they made the community of Jesus their primary community. James and John, they left the fisherman's life. Max, Ma- Matthew left the tax collector's booth. Simon left the practices of this zealous tribe. This was a new community. What, that, what might that mean for you? It means that there are certain old associations that you may need to leave behind for the sake of this community and for unity. I love how Jesus calls James and John and he says, give up the life of a fisherman and come follow me, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you fishers of men. <laughs> In other words, I'm going to turn you from a fisherman who follows God's law into a disciple, an apostle, one who I'm sending out who's going to reel in other people. The disciples don't lose their identities when, when they answer the call to follow Jesus, but he redefines their identities and what's important. And certain things had to be left behind. For me in that chapel, there was no Catholic or Protestant. I wasn't a pietist. I wasn't a Protestant. We were just Jesus followers. That's a beautiful thing. Second thing, in order to commit yourself to unity, you will actually need to trust somebody else actually trust somebody else again if god had wanted the disciples to live out his purposes in isolation he would have trained them individually but jesus trains and disciples and teaches a community because that's god that's how god designed them to reflect his goodness to the world so guess what in order to be in that kind of community you're gonna have to trust somebody else and i mean really trust somebody you'll have to trust them in order to work together for sure But I think even more importantly, you're going to need to trust them with your heart. When's the last time that you really trusted a fellow Christian with your story? When's the last time you put yourself out there and you said, here's my biggest struggle, or I need help, or my marriage is crumbling, or we're in financial trouble, or I'm in pain and I don't know what to do? You're going to have to trust somebody else. And here's the hardest thing of all. You're going to have to trust somebody else who differs from you, (laughs) maybe even fundamentally conservative or liberal, pro this, anti that, organ music or electric guitars, big money, little money. We can't afford to be suspicious of one another or to hold our lives too close to the vest because nobody is going to be compelled to join a community where people don't trust each other and aren't real. Third thing, we need to make efforts to hold on to one another. Our denomination has made a practice of of making every effort that we can to hang on to one another and choose to not break fellowship. 
if at all possible. We've been able to do this by focusing on the, follow, on the call to follow Jesus, which we have in common. What we often say is that we major on the majors and minor on the minors. Minors would be things like political stances and non-essential theological differences and preferences for worship. Majors would include belief in Jesus Christ and a desire to follow him. That's about it. <laughs> I think that's why the disciples could stay unified, because Jesus was central and everything else was secondary. I think that's why this pilgrimage worked so well for us, because our focus was following Jesus. And I think it's good for us to be reminded this morning that the world is watching our community. If this is the kind of community where fractures happen easily, if this is the kind of community where we write one another off or label each other, it's not going to compel a thirsty world to much of anything. In a world that divides so easily and writes off so easily, unity can be a radical revelation. And if our community is focused on the, fall, on, the, on the call of following Jesus and we call that out to other people, they will sense our unity. Unity is truly at the core of our witness. As we close this morning, I want us to ponder one last time the prayer in John 17. It's Jesus' longest recorded prayer in scripture. It's, it's sort of his final act in a way. It's like a high priestly prayer that leads him to the cross to die. And I think what's so remarkable about this text and why it's so compelling is that we don't have to struggle to enter this text because we are already in the text. Jesus prays for his disciples and all of those who will believe through their witness. Perhaps you've never thought of it this way, but Jesus' last act was to pray for you and to pray for this church. You are in Scripture. And when he prays for all of those who believe through the disciples, that's you and that's me. And what does he pray for? Unity, yours and mine today, right now, so that we might bring the witness of Jesus to the world. So what I want to do is, I, I want to end this morning by asking you to just close your eyes. I want to just read part of this prayer again, and I want you to receive it as Jesus praying for you. If you're comfortable, I would invite you to just take your hands and open your palms on your lap or in front of you as a sign of openness to Jesus' prayer for you. Receive these words. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be one.